The Second Generation Podcast is a space to discuss issues and experiences unique to second generation millennials living in North America. I want to tell untold stories that are often not documented, and through this, insert the perspectives of this unique demographic into the mainstream narratives about life, work, family, politics, and everything else in between. Hey, Adil. Hey, Sahar. What's up? All the things. <laughs> what are all the things? <laughs> well, it depends where we want to go with this conversation. <laughs> okay, well, let's start with um, the topic, which is your recent trip to India. Mm-hmm. So, for those of us who don't know you, which is probably many people the, who are listening. The vast majority that are listening be, right yeah, now. Yeah, probably yes. the majority. Yes. Um, tell me about your decision to go to India and... Even just a bit of a snapshot of where you were before and the process of deciding to go on this trip and what your trip was, in a nutshell. In a nutshell. <laughs> um, well, uh, I uh, I grew up um, thinking about retirement more than someone should. Uh, and I think the reason for that is my dad's a financial planner, so it was just a word and concept that was around me a lot. And it always felt um, odd to me that I would wait until the end, quote unquote the end, to live my life. And, uh, you know, the whole notion of freedom 55. I was like, I want freedom now. And uh, and so I kind of, uh, I asked myself, you know, maybe every five or seven years I could take retirement in installments, no matter what I, what I, what I, was, what I was doing, no matter where I was, yeah. like, just like, just take it. Um, and I think, I think another way of this is described obviously would be like the concept of like a sabbatical. Um, and, uh, and so that, that was, that was like one big factor. And then I, you know, specifically I was working at the center for social innovation for about six years. And, uh, I really like, I love that organization. I love the people I had, like what was a dream job for myself. Um, uh, but I had, I also knew that I was, uh, I was ready for retirement. And, uh, and which is another way of saying I was just ready for the next thing. And so, um, so that was like my context. And then I knew once I kind of got around, this was about, uh, last December, once I was like, okay, I'm going to give myself a year to transition and then officially retire from my work there. Um, once I knew that that was happening, I started to ask myself what I wanted to do. And for a long time in my life, uh, I have dreamt and thought about going to India. And what is your, I should have started with this as well, but what is your family's or your connection to India? So my connection to India is that my ancestors uh, are from India. So I'm, I'm Indian and my ancestors are from India. And roughly around 200 years ago, they left India, um, went to Tanzania and uh, and about just under 50 years ago, most of them came from Tanzania to Canada. Uh, so I am Indian, Tanzanian, Canadian. And, um, and I had never been to India. Um, and, uh, and so I, I'd, I'd always had this draw to go there, or this urge to go there. Uh, but I was also conscious that India wasn't like a two-week trip. Um, and so I was waiting for the right time when I had time. And... I merged that with the 
that my current context was, which was this uh, upcoming retirement, and uh, and I went and uh, I went for around four months, and uh, I went you know almost uh, for a good chunk of the time I was there with uh, my love show, and uh, and then I was alone for about a month too, and uh, that's when I, I just got back about two weeks ago. Wow. And do you do you know where your ancestors were from in India? Yes, they were from uh, a state called Gujarat, um, which uh, uh, was just just a um, in the kind of northern bordering Pakistan uh, side of things. Mm. Uh, so so there was it was very exciting to to go back to to go to to go to Gujarat and to see. Uh, the seeds of my story through my ancestors' experience, and I'd always thought, like, I feel like, um, you know, my ancestors, like some a group of people, being my ancestors, made a series of decisions uh, uh, to take some risks, investment sacrifices, to improve their and the future generations' uh, situations. And fast forward to today, I am the future generation. And I have an enormously, uh, enormous like privilege in life, and um, and I feel like I just like had this vision of like my family, you know, two hundred years ago, being like, should we go? Should we not? And being like, this is this is this is the best thing for our family, um, and maybe one day someone will appreciate that. Yeah. And for me, I felt like going back there was my way of saying I appreciated that, and to see them. Uh, for what they did for me. And had you been before? No. You had never been. Never been. No. And you're in your thirties. Yeah, I'm thirty-six now. It's a great question because while I did say I had this longing to go to India, I felt that internally for for quite some time. But the most uh, the most significant uh, learning and experience for me in India. Uh, was actually owning that I'm Indian. So the, this question about, um, you know, did had you gone before? Uh, actually, it's such an interesting question because for most of my life I have resisted India uh, and being Indian. Mm. And you grew up in Toronto, correct? So what was there any? And I actually generally don't know this about you. Like, was there any connection to Indian culture when you were growing up here? Or like the disconnect that you're talking about, how did that play out in your upbringing, or even like your adult life until just now when you went back? For sure. So, so, so they, there was all there's for sure elements of the Indian culture that exists existed in my childhood and to today, um, f- from the food that's being made at home to the fact that my my parents and family members speak, uh, you know, talking Gujarati and some in Hindi. Um, or weddings in the fashion, uh, watching Bollywood films. So there's there's lots there's lots of Indian mm-hmm. elements around me. Uh, with that said, growing up here in Toronto and in Canada, um, I grew up uh, in a in a place where there were no um, there were no famous Indian sports players, uh, people in music, people in acting. Now, of course, that that exists in the Bollywood side, but Bollywood didn't touch me a lot. Well, well, being here, um, there weren't a lot of like role models uh, that were presented to me that were Indian. And in fact, when Indians were portrayed in more modern media, uh, they're often portrayed as the Apu from Simpsons, the Fez from the '70s show, 
taxi cab drivers to terrorists. And uh, from those inputs, uh, from those stories, it just felt socially disadvantageous to identify as Indian. And, uh, and so I really like kind of just separated myself. So what did you identify as? Well, this is actually the best question because I, I, this was a question I've struggled with my entire life. And I think at some points I would say that I'm Canadian. You know, the question, where are you from? At some points I'd say I'm Canadian. And other points I would identify Tanzania because I would know when I say Canadian, people wouldn't be satisfied with that answer. Um, but I never said Indian. Never, ever until the last, you know, four or five months of my life has, you know, a few minutes ago, I identified as Indian, Tanzanian, Canadian. That is, that is new, uh, for me. And, um, uh, and a lot of that, I had a, I had a moment, um, on the trip where, where they coalesced for me who I was and how to identify. And it was this, it was this moment which, so we were in Varanasi, which is like the spiritual soul or center of India. And we were doing, uh, we we're doing yoga and this old yogi who, if you can imagine this, um, resembled a young Yoda, old yogi, young Yoda, uh, beautiful, beautiful man. And he, um, uh, we were doing this class and I was, I was bending on my knees and where I really, really struggled in general to do. And he was watching me struggle and he kind of shook his head and he's like, I thought you said you were Indian. And in that moment, like my entire identity narrative came up and I was like, well, actually my ancestors are from India and they're also from Tanzania and I was born in Canada. And so, you know, I was, I was kind of explaining this, this path and he, he just kind of, he's like, okay. He's like, look, he's like, you have Indian in your blood. Therefore, I believe you can do yoga with some practice. And that line landed for me so hard because I, for most of my life, I was thinking in binary, as we all do, given the society that we grow up in, man, woman, black, white, um, Canadian or Indian. Um, I was thinking in binary, whereas with him saying, you know, I'm Indian in my blood, landed in a way that I was like, I do have Indian in my blood and I do have Tanzanian and I do have Canadian. Mm -hmm. And instead of being in binary, I could go towards a more abundant model. And, uh, and that's where I'm today. So, so back in, backtracking to like the first day that you landed there mm. and you'd never been mm -hmm. to India, like what was the first day or, or first couple days like? Like what were the things that you noticed right away? Because when you're in a foreign country, you notice the everyday things that like in Canada, we, we're used to certain everyday things. And then when you're transplanted into another place, Sometimes you notice like random things or, yeah. you know what I mean? Like what, do you remember, like what were the things that really struck you? Um, often when people have asked me that question, it's come a little bit differently where they've been like, well, when you land, did you feel a sense of home or belonging? Mm -hmm. So the answer is no. I did not feel immediately that I was like, I've come home. Otto's <laughs> 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 back. Uh, <laughs> I didn't feel that. Um, what I what I felt or what I noticed were the things that people highlighted for me before going. So before going, people talked to me a lot about the food. Like, oh, you're gonna love the food. And as soon as I landed there, I was like, oh my god, all these different kinds of food and different variations of it. 
immediately it came up and immediately I wanted to, to eat all the things. Um, before coming to India, people mentioned things like the food, you know, they talked about language, so what language are things that I noticed. And I find that a lot of my conversations before going um, about India were about things that people were scared or had negative experience or thoughts about India. So the two that came up most often was you're going to get sick. Yeah. And, and uh, it was said to both me and, and Shelby, but often more to Shelby, um, the line of be careful of men there. And uh, and so because I, I, I had many conversations with people that revolved around those two things, when I got there, it was ingrained in me to look for those things and to ensure that I was being careful of them, uh, which is like so fascinating because now in, in hindsight, like um, I basically just carried forward these uh, limiting thoughts, negative stereotypes into my into my presence there. Um, and and so I noticed that I caught myself uh, being more skeptical of people um, and being more skeptical of what I put inside me from a food perspective. Um, and and that I would say fear based existence was very different for me compared to my existence here, which is this is very far from fear. Um, and it was something I worked on throughout the trip. Interesting. Um, so while you're away, we're in a WhatsApp group together and you sent this voice note about your experience, which is kind of where the inspiration to do an episode on this came from. And I re-listened to that voice note uh, today to remind myself because it was, I guess, a couple of months ago now. And in it, you had said, actually, I think you were quoting someone else and I forgot the name, but the quote was um, about how India is an underdeveloped country but really an ancient civilization under decay. Yeah. How did you see that during your four months there? So it's, this was like a really shifting moment when I heard this quote. Um, I actually do forget the gentleman's name, but he's an Indian author or a writer, and now actually I believe he's a politician. Um, and his quote was something along the lines of, the West's perception of India is that of being an underdeveloped country. However, India is actually a great and ancient civilization that happens to be in rapid decay. And um, the reason why that landed for me so significantly uh, was that was my perception. Part of the reason why I distanced myself from India uh, for most of my life is because India, while being here in Canada uh, and in other parts of the world where, where I, you know, I studied in the UK, for example, at one point. You did? I did, yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. What did you study there? Uh, I did my first year of university there. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So I studied a little bit of everything. Um, you know, living in these different Western places, India was always presented as an underdeveloped country. And so that was my perception uh, of India. And then, you know, the, to the second part of, of his quote, um, uh, in, India is an ancient civilization and has so much greatness that, that I either missed or just... Um, couldn't see because I was focused on the narrative of being underdeveloped. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's so fascinating because connecting that to another moment I had, um, you know, someone was saying, you know, it's so fascinating that people from the West that come and they pay all this money to travel to India, to come to retreats, meet gurus, etc. Um, and then they'll see two Indian men sitting underneath a tree and their thought will be like those men are being lazy because that's the paradigm to which you grow up in but in actuality we're just doing the very being which you've come all the way here to learn how to do mm -hmm. 
And and that that combined with that first um, quote uh, really resonated on me realizing that the narrative that I've learned of India is that of being an underdeveloped uh, country, mm-hmm. whereas in actuality, it is this beautiful, ancient civilization which has gone through so many iterations. And I, and potentially we from West Perspective, are still learning about all the incredible things it has to offer as we unmask our uh, colonial and um, and really like biased frameworks. Yeah. Uh, and that's you know like whether it's India or Ayurvedic uh, uh, eating, um, um, uh, the state of being, um, you know uh, its perceptions around religion and plurality around it. Like there's there's so many lessons that I learned in India, which I would have never learned here because the narratives here are quite different. I love the word civilization because it is so much more than a country and the history is so rich and it's so, it's literally ancient. Like I was going to say the history is so old, but it's literally ancient. Like my parents, so Pakistan used to be part of India, as did Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. And I remember like when I was younger, my parents would make fun of Canadian history because they'd be like, how is this historic? It's like, a, it's not even 150 years old. Like these people consider this history. Right. And then you go yep, to like exactly. the old markets and the old towns, which are still somewhat preserved, mm-hmm. not intentionally. Like that's just like life has just gone on mm-hmm. in the same space. And you see like actual history, honestly, it's, it's like you can feel the history and you can see those buildings that, have been there for literally hundreds of years. Like I'm thinking of, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Wazir Khan Mosque in Lahore. No. It's like very, very beautiful. It's it's so old and like you go there and it's almost, at least the times that I've been there, it has not been packed with tourists. Mm. I, I'm sure a lot of tourists go there and stuff, but it's just like a part of the old part of Lahore, which mm-hmm. is where, um, I, I hope I'm getting this right. I might not be, but... I'm pretty sure that is where there were gates that went into Delhi. Like they mm. went into India. And so there's seven gates that all that connected like India and Pakistan. Mm. And so so that part of old Lahore still has two. Like when you go to Lahore, you can see two of those old gates. And those mm. gates used to be like connections to different like parts of the country. Yes. I think I might be factually incorrect on some pieces of that but the gist of it is what it is and so like you go there and there's people that have their homes there there's all there's this huge like market you can go so deep into it and it's like you feel like you're in a whole other country within Pakistan like it's so different and unique um but yeah like when you say civilization ancient civilization like even going to Pakistan in the few times I've gone to that area like you can feel you can feel that when you're there yeah yeah, yeah. It's uh, one of the things I noticed about India too is that it's. I mean, it's a remarkably diverse country. People talk, eat, look different based on where they are in India, um, and that and that is because it's like as being Asian civilization. I mean, there's many people who have come in and been brought together, and um, uh, and yes, it's it's quite diverse in that way. Yeah. I was reading this book. It's called What the Body Remembers. Mm-hmm. And it's about... Oh, I feel like you would love it. I feel like um, that title. Yeah. It's, it's about this woman's experience during partition. Mm-hmm. And it's set in Old Lahore, which is what I just described to you, but pre-partition. So it, 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 
includes the Indian part. And they actually described the very gates that I just explained. So when I went there, they were, it was actually like things that I read about in that book. And it's mm. very detailed in its account of how the neighborhoods used to look like. So when you talk about the diversity, like from this book, because I never learned this growing up here. Like I didn't learn history about South Asia. Like mm-hmm. I learned Canadian history here. Um, but I learned about how literally in the same enclave, the one that I just described and I've been to, there used to be like neighborhoods and it would be like Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Sikhs, and they all lived together, like pre-colonial era. Right. Um, so that diversity is like very, very rich too. Yep. Yeah. Of course. Um, so I had another question. You had talked in, in that same voice note about the everyday impact of colonialism mm. that you notice in like the small ways like yeah. what were some of those um yeah i i i was surprised uh, just right at the top to to i think my experience with colonialism has mainly been uh, as being you know part of the settler community here in canada and um uh, as a consequence i just i mean i have one view and touch point on it but i haven't had or thought i haven't thought a lot about it from other cultures and, and communities. And um, and so it, India surprised me. My experience in India surprised me because um, I did not anticipate experiencing colonialism there. Really? But I 100% did. Yeah. Um, yes, the in this you know, most recent case, yes, the British are, uh, you know, the, India is no, no longer part of the, the British uh, Empire. Um, but the impact of that empire um, and that and colonialism continues to have ripple effects today, in some some ways in the most insidious, in some ways in the most obvious. So you know some of some some simple everyday ways. Um, I learned there that when the British were were ruling India, um, they wanted to align all the train times, uh, and so um, they brought India under one uh, common time. And, um, and the reason why that's, uh, so that happened and the reason why that's so uh, hopefully and probably that it helped things from a travel perspective, but, uh, the negative repercussion is that there's people in India and particularly think about young people in India who just don't have as much light in their day. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have as much light in your day, you don't have as much time for things like school, for play, for family, whatever it might be. Right. Um, and and so I learned that as being one of the common day. So when you think about the systemic issues around uh, children and education, some of them are deal with the fact they don't have enough light, wow. enough daytime. And so that's a legacy of, of the colonial rule. Um, another one was um, I worked for two weeks on a reforce, reforestation project in the South. And um, the South, the, the forest we're working in, um, 0.1% of the natural forces left the reason for that is when the british came um they started planting cashew trees uh, in the in the south because they grew really well there but they weren't indigenous to there and the type of the reason why they're planting cashew trees is because cashews uh, are really good for for uh weaponry they're really good in, in wartime really yeah there's there's like a, a poison around cashews it's very similar to poison ivy um and it's like an oil actually that's quite good for weaponry and so, so the so the British basically um, started planting a lot of cashew trees, trees and getting rid of the indigenous forests. 
um, uh, to the point that they just completely ruined the ecosystem. Wow. And um, and so and 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 then when they left, they obviously stopped farming the cashews and like the, basically like the natural forest ecosystem where I was like fell apart. And so. So yeah, so now I was working very briefly on this project uh, where they're trying to replant the forest. Mm-hmm. So that so that's it was another modern day way that colonialism showed up, and then less tangible was just in the way um, I was treated by people there who perceived me to be Indigenous Indian, um, and in the psyche of Indians. So for example, more often than not, I found people revered. Uh, uh, British slash white people, um, and and simultaneously belittled Indian people. Yeah, and that's like a very ingrained part of the culture. Hundred percent. And this, I'm sure, like this, because this happens to me too. The second you spoke English, it's like the the response changes when they hear like a Canadian accent. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I found that uh, so my experience with uh, Caucasian travelers uh, on that trip was the, the men uh, generally either did not see me or when they saw me, they were looking to see if I, was of, if I could be of some sort of service to them. So most of, the, most of their interactions that I observed, like white men with, um, uh, with Indian men, is like the Indian men are serving them food, yeah. except like they're at the hotels or whatever it might be, directions, the rickshaw drivers, whatever. Um, and so either they didn't see me or they would ask me for help with something. Um, and then uh, with with uh, Caucasian white women, and I'm just using Caucasian white because there wasn't actually a, a tremendous amount of other looking travelers there. Um, but with them, uh, uh, inherently there was a fear when I was in their vicinity or, or proximity. How did you like? How did you pick up on that? Oh, I mean, I have a lifetime of knowing what it's like for people to be scared of me, and so it's become. Uh, you can tell from body language, from energy, um, uh, from from uh, you know the way people look at you. Um, to, to, there's so many, there's so many ways to know how someone is scared of you, or if someone has some sort of fear around you. And then again, going back to what I was saying earlier, these people, much like myself, were coming from a place where people were like, "You're going to India. I heard it's beautiful, super spiritual. Be careful about getting sick, and be careful of the men there." So. So I don't, I actually have a ton of empathy and understanding for, for that reaction. I think if you're told by many people many times, in, we were thinking about going to the Osho Retreat Center in Punai. And at the Osho Retreat Center, um, uh, one of the uh, items in the guidelines of the books is, is uh, in, um, uh, instructing people to not have, uh, to not connect with Indian men. Because they were like Indian men aren't safe, and and wow. there's a lot of sexual liberation there, and so so it's so fascinating because like somebody else said this to me, they're like everyone like the Osho sex, like everyone there has experience with sexual liberation, but Indian men are ostracized as the ones being unsafe, and um, and so anyway, all to say that like uh, I felt this this like the legacy of colonialism through my interactions with uh, Caucasian people there. And then with with Indian people, um, uh, I think exactly what you said it was it was so fascinating. Like I think I, I felt like a self deprecating, a lesser than feeling. And then when they when when in, in the instances where I got to know them and or they heard me speak and noticed I wasn't from there, um, they were fascinated by 
by whatever the by, by the journey that my family had, mm-hmm. um, because I think it was very helpful for them. It was very helpful for them uh, that my family, uh, an Indian family, could be so successful in a predominantly British slash white environment. So much so that I could retire and you know quote unquote retire and come back to India. And uh, there's something really validating and exciting for them around that. Mm. And I think that's really sweet, but I think it also came from this sense of, like again, like this lesser than. Yeah, for sure. My family left India 200 years ago at a time when Indian people were told they were less than the British. I believe, you know, what was that book you just quoted? The, the, uh, what the Body Remembers. I think, I believe, and I only, I only came to this realization while traveling, I believe my family carried oh, yeah. that oh, yeah. and generation yeah, got passed says. down and into to my very existence here I that has existed for sure yeah yeah, yeah. like even my parents there's certain small things that like now as an adult and I have this lens that I can put on it so I can see it for what it is it, it is that like legacy of colonialism so like my parents telling or my mom telling me don't go out in the sun because you're going to get tanned yeah. like that is a product of that um, straighten your hair because we're going to a fancy event. That right. is a product of that. Like there's so many different, or even like sometimes what kind of clothes to wear at a cultural versus non-cultural event. Um, I, I recently got invited. This is someone who's my demographic, like second generation, grew up here. Um, I got invited to a, 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 baby, sh- a baby shower and... The invitation literally said dress code Western attire. And it's like, why did you need to even specify that? Like, what were you in in the planning stages? Like, what was the thought process that you were like, I want to make sure that this is on the invitation? And this, again, like someone in my my, uh, demographic. So that legacy is really, it's so, so real, even when you come here. For sure. And I just want to acknowledge on the topic of colonialism, um, India was also, parts of India were also colonized by the Mughals. um, Mm -hmm. uh, And as a Muslim person, that was really interesting and confusing for me uh, because in some ways I also also, uh, was a product of colonization, but from the other side of things. Yeah, that's true. And, And India's unwrapping itself from British colonial rule, but also Muslim colonial rule um, in some ways that makes sense, in some ways that are kind of scary and unfortunate uh, because uh, it's uh, connected to uh, political tensions a lot. And so I, I, I think it's really important for me to acknowledge that my presence in India could be felt both as, uh, as someone who has lineage towards being colonized and towards people who were the colonizers. Mm. And in the Canadian example, uh, I'm someone who's not benefiting from someone else's colonialism. So so I don't, I have so much, under, like uh, uh, I guess, uh, empathy and understanding towards this experience that I'm not saying, oh, I've had this interaction with a uh, British colonizer or relatives from that and and disparaging in any way. Mm. I, think, I think this is actually a pretty important experience that we share and I'm just trying to understand and learn from it so I don't uh, uh, we learn we learn history so we can liberate ourselves from it and that's what I'm trying to do right now so two last questions but they're big ones um, so you said 
you what you said um, while you were in India and you sent that same voice note. You you were like, this is probably the most predictable thing I can say, but India has changed me. Mm-hmm. So how do you think that this trip changed your perspective about the world around you and yourself? <laughs> <laughs> in a nutshell. In a nutshell. In a nutshell. Um, yeah, I think I think my trip was predictably life-changing but it wasn't predictable how it would be and the reason why I make that distinction is because I think India just opened my mind in a lot of ways in ways I couldn't have predicted and I think that in itself is like such an important life lesson just to get outside of our boxes and what we know Um, what I knew going into that trip was a confusion around my identity what I know now is that I'm Indian Tanzanian Canadian um, because of that knowing, I have more self-love. Um, I'm, I'm so proud of where I've come from. And when I say I come, I come from, I refer to my family, my ancestry. Um, and, uh, and so and as a consequence of having more love, like I, I seek uh, less validation. And so there's this ripple of effect in me by just by being really clear about my identity. Um, so I think that's like a really really important strand I think um, you know I think it was kind of clear but maybe just to really make this point like I think understanding colonialism from all the different angles while there will help me better here understand my role as it relates to being uh, a settler uh, a part of the settler community and and as it relates to work that I'd like to 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 participate in around reconciliation Um, and um, and I mean, there's there's a couple of other ways, but one that comes up, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story, if it fits our nutshell. Um, <laughs> I uh, I had a moment uh, actually also in Varanasi. Varanasi is a very old town, very European feeling in terms of like cobblestony roads that are narrow. And one night, Chill and I were walking, and we're only ones in the street. And behind us, um, we heard the sounds of a cow coming. And at, at that point, I'd become kind of familiar with the presence of cows like everywhere in India, um, just so kind of early enough in, the, in my experience with them. And uh, we heard this cow coming behind us and and it, the road was so narrow that Cho and I basically had to part and stand against the walls for the cow, the car, the cow to walk through. So as the car, cow walks through, I, I looked at it for the first time properly and it was just a really good looking cow. <laughs> it's just like really, really pretty. And... For whatever reason, what come what came out of me was I said, uh, like you're you're so beautiful, and, and you said that to the I cow. said that to the cow. I, I you nev- verbally said I verbally words. said those words. I, I don't know where that came from, but I verbalized it. And she stops. She looks me <laughs> dead in the eyes, and she smiles. Aww. And how does cows smile? I'm gonna smile. They got really? they got smiles. I haven't spent much time with cows. Neither have I. Neither have I. And the cows that I have uh, experienced with here um, often come from cows that have been that carry the generational pain of being treated as food and being slaughtered. So, so the life in the cows that I met here was so different than the life of the cows that I met there. They're so much more alive and free, and a lot, a lot like I very similar to my experience with dogs here. Um, cows are really smart. Super smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, anyway, so she looks at me, she nods, 
smiles, and then she looks forward, and she's, I feel like she, like, just struts away. And in that moment, and I want to be really clear, it wasn't, like, a spiritual moment. It was, it was again, like, I was talking to a dog, and we just happened to understand each other. But I still was like, did that happen? So I look at Sho, I'm like, Sho, um, what did you just witness happening? And she was like, I think I just witnessed you flirting with the cat. <laughs> and I was like, I did flirt with the cat. Accurate. And, um... And I haven't been able to eat uh, beef since, and and I've wow. grown up with a voracious appetite around yeah. me, and embedded in my culture um, and my family. And I haven't been able to eat beef since because you know I I was I was quite familiar with a lot of the challenges around um, uh, our cultures around food and vis-a-vis what it does to my body and to the environment. But what happened to me in that moment was. Um, uh, I connected to I connect I had a connection with the cow and that and that taught me that cows have feelings and the capacity for love and the minute I knew that I was like how could I eat you and um, and I think by extension I think like you know in our society like the more experience and touch points we have with beings who are not like us um, the more likely we're to develop empathy compassion and love for them and the less likely we're to treat them as enemy enemies to the point that we can disregard them and so um so it was like so the the really like a tangible difference in me is this food choice but um a much more philosophical one um was seeing uh seeing uh, i think like up until that point i had prioritized humans our our beings is the most important and and centered our my my worldly experience around that and then subsequent to that i started seeing us among other beings and before the introduction of organized religions um homo sapiens saw spirits and all and rocks and trees and water and cows and dogs and we talked to them and um and then we stopped talking to them the minute we had more power than them and gandhi would gandhi would say um you know he never understood eating meat because um, he's like animals have less power uh, than mm-hmm. humans, and what does it say about us that we take advantage of the power by eating them? Mm-hmm. And so I think like all of those things came together for me. So that that's like really coming through me, and again, it's showing up in the food, but it's showing up in just how I exist in the world with other beings, my relationship to nature, and, um, you know, obviously my relationship to to, to animals, um, and I think. What that does uh, collectively is that just enhances my own capacity for, for compassion. Um, if you can, if you can love, and if you love a tree, if you can love a cow, you certainly can love someone else who's quite different than you. Hmm. That's such a good way of putting it. Uh, so yes, that's, like someone who thinks differently than you. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and so, so I think that's it. And then. I want, I want to share one more thing yeah. that leads me to this, and I know this is uh, four answers within your one, but it was a big question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one other thing I learned which relates to that and kind of draws, these all kind of come together is um, very early in the trip, uh, I was struggling, we were doing, we were meditating, and I was really struggling, and I told Sho, I said, look, um, I need to find like a workshop, a guru, or a course, something, because at home I struggle with meditation, but I have all these distractions. Here I have no distractions and I'm so struggling. So I have, I have, a, I have a concentration problem. I have a meditation problem, something like that. And the next day we met this other traveler and she asked me if I knew who Amma was. Do you know who Amma is? No, but you, you, told, you shared a story. A yeah. Okay, so I'll just say, 
So I was like, who is this? And it turns out Amma is, um, when she was a child, her parents used to send, she was from a very, care left from a, what's been a traditionally poor part of India, and her parents sent her to her neighbor's house to look for food scraps for their animals. And, um, and Amma saw like the spectrum of people, how they lived, and a lot of people who really struggled financially, um, she would say, look, I, I have nothing to give you, but I can give some love. And she, I think she would give them a hug. By the time Amma was nine, she earned the name, like people started calling her Amma, which means mother. Yeah. And fast forward to today, she's 65. She has this uh, incredible, vibrant ashram in Kerala. And it's estimated that she's hugged over 30 million people. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and this woman, this tribal woman, she said, she told us about Amma. I, I was first intrigued by the fact that she she was a she because I hadn't heard of a guru that was a, a mm-hmm. woman at that point so that was the first intriguing part and then she said she told me she talked about the hugging thing I thought that was like I'd never heard anything like that and she was like yeah and she's been traveling for three months and she gets back to her ashram tomorrow and I said where's her ashram she said 45 minutes from here in this massive wide country with so much to offer this uh woman was coming back to Ashram, which was down the street from us. So we went. Um, of course we went. And of course there was a course there on meditation, which Amma developed, which has set me on a path towards being, being much so better at took it. took the course. Took the course. Yeah. But, the, but the most profound thing that happened about our experience at Amma's Ashram was, was actually seeing her hug. Um, seeing her hug. Seeing her hug. Because seeing her hug, this is a person who's hugged over 30 million people. Wow. Seeing her hug was like watching uh, Beyonce on stage, LeBron on the court, Barack at a podium. It was like watching genius. Wow. And her genius was in hugging. And just suspending our beliefs for a second and thinking about putting the words genius and hugging together, watching watching you know, this woman like hug people was like watching... You know, artists, a peak artist in their in their peak form, um, and and it was amazing. And, I, and the reason why that came up as I was talking about what happened with the cows, uh, my experience with Emma happened before, and I think um, Emma just like opened me to a capacity for love which I did not know could possibly exist. My favorite thing is I asked them, I said, how long does she hug people for? And their answer was, until everyone who wants a hug gets a hug. Oh, wow. I know. So she like she will sometimes hug for 14, 16 hours at a time. What? And and then, of course, the obvious question is, like, how does anyone actually do that? And Amma's answer is that she's like, I'm just a vessel for, for the divine. Um, it's not me. And it's a beautiful answer from a humility perspective. Um and and Sheila and I certainly lined up for a hug, and when I hugged her, I felt like I was putting she she her hug is more of an embrace. She puts your your head in her chest, and she whispers you know an Arcus mantras into her ear, and I mean it just felt like for that brief moment in time, like I was I was connected to a divine source. Wow. Um, and and I think that had to happen for me that opening of that door around what's possible with love had to happen in order for me to extend my love not just for humans but beyond humans to other beings uh, which took me to a place today where I'm like just filled with love most uh, and first for myself 
um, which allows me to, to just exist mm-hmm. in a completely complete state. Wow. Um, so when are you going to go back? Um, was that your last question? Yeah. Yeah? Cool. Um, I don't think soon. I think that, like, uh, I think there's there's other places uh, that I'm really interested in. Um, I think I, like, I really want to make... So, it's, okay, so this is why it's, it's a really interesting, albeit simple question. I met, I met a lot of people there who had been to India more than once. Which is wonderful and indicative of like their positive experience there. That the the challenge I think is that a lot of them said to me uh, when I came to India the first the second time I felt this sense of connection or love or peace or spiritual calling or whatever, and then I came home and I like couldn't find it again so I've come back. Oh. And um, uh, and it makes sense to me because in most experiences in my life where I've had like a big moment of change. A big trip, a graduation, you know, leaving a job, whatever it might be, um, we're so quick to go to the next thing that we don't give ourselves the, opp- the opportunity um, for. Um, uh, we had a big crash outside your door just now. Was so that outside the door? I feel like it was right outside your okay. door. Well, we'll deal with okay. it. Okay. The priority <laughs> is this podcast. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So obviously we're okay with what the priority is. Okay. Um, otherwise we can go. Um, so, uh, okay. Yeah. So I, I felt like what I was hearing when those people shared that was my own experience of having these major moments and then coming back the next day and being in my everyday and not being able to integrate what I learned. And um, I really related to a lot of them when they were like, you know, I found something here, but I went home and I couldn't find it there. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense because we go home and then we're like, we're straight back into our lives and our relationships and, and everything here. And so I, I made it a mission for myself that um, when I came home, I would not just start from yeah. where I left. Uh, I would be in no rush to work and no rush to do anything. And I would focus my first period of time here on integrating the lessons that I learned from India mm-hmm. so that I never need to go back um, because I may not ever go. There's a lot of other places to go and tomorrow's not a given. Um, and so uh, so at this point, uh, it would be nice to go back. I may go back, but I'm not planning on it. Um, and, uh, and I'm intending to bring India with me uh, through the focus on uh, integrating the lessons I learned there. And that stretches from the tangible to I want to make sure I continue doing yoga every day or how I'm eating to the intangible, which is this, you know, the capacity for love uh, or the state of being, which I learned there and, and figuring out how it exists in my life here. And your identity. And, and yes, and my identity. I mean, that one is like so ingrained now. Like yeah. I actually, it's so fascinating from an integration perspective. That one's requiring the least. Because it feels so mm-hmm. nice to 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 have clarity on my identity that it's actually not hard to go back now. Whereas, like a state of being, um, is a lot harder to go back to um, uh, because here there's so many more distractions and pressures, and s- the speed is different. Um, and uh, and so I really have to work at that one. Mm. Great. Well, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it. This is great.
Okay, bye. <laughs>